in Acts chapter 20, we have a church that is in a transition. Now, transitions happen in all forms. I've had at least two or three conversations already this morning with folks who are at transition points in their life. There are some parents who are transitioning to their children going off to college. I talked to a, a parent in the, in the early service, and they're addressing this is the first week for their child to be away. So it's a, it's a new experience for them. It's a new experience for their student to be in college. There are those who are transitioning to different stages in their schooling. There are students who are going to high school for the first time. There are students that are going to school for the first time. There are those who are going through transitions in their lives. There are stages in our life where we realize, wow, I have um, reached the age that I remember my parents being, and that's a, <laughs> that is certainly a unique stage to be in. Um, I, I've, my son reminds me frequently of how old I'm getting, and I'm thinking, yeah, I can still handle you. It's okay. It, does, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, it's, it's how if you can still handle your kids. And so we go through these stages and transitions. Some people are transitioning on their jobs. Some people are transitioning in, in, in family life, and there's a lot of change that takes place. As a church, we are, as we know, in, in the middle of a transition and change, and we see in this, in this chapter, in this experience with Paul and the church at Ephesus, a transition that is taking place. And as we see this ministry in transition, it is relevant for us as a church, but it is also helpful for us as we go through changes and transition times in our lives. And I want you to see some truths from this this morning. I'm going to read the entire section because this is Paul's comments to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He will ultimately go to Rome where he will eventually be put to death. But as, as he travels, he knows that this is the last time he is going to get to see the elders of the church of Ephesus. It's a church that he helped found. It's a church that he spent three years plus ministering to and teaching and instructing. Now I want you to see this as he says in verse 17, From Miletus he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mine, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews." And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save except that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. 
For I know this, that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone, night and day with tears. Now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. The remaining part is the emotional response that these leaders have for Paul as he departs for Jerusalem, knowing that they will not see him again. God is not finished with Paul. Paul still has much work to be done. He has epistles to be written. He has messages to be preached. But the work that he has in this season of his life, in this stage of his life, is coming to a completion. And so it's a time of this transition in this church. Now, as we look at this passage, there's several things that we could note just to introduce us to this passage. There's, first of all, Paul speaks about his faithful witness. He says, you know how I have been when I've been here. I have a testimony. He says, I have preached to you. I have been among you. I have been consistent. He uses the phrase, at all seasons. It's the same, similar thought that he'll use later when he writes to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, be instant in season and out of season. There are seasons in our lives. There are seasons in ministry. There are times, there are, there are dry times in life and in ministry. And there are, there are, there are, uh, there are profitable times and fruitful times. There are times of winnowing. There are all sorts of seasons that we go through. And yet we are to be instant. We are to be consistent. Paul ministered with humility. He says, I ministered, in verse 19, with humility of mind. There was an humbleness about Paul. Paul could have been the proudest person that there, were, there was in the church. Paul established more churches than any other apostle. Paul wrote more of the New Testament than any other apostle. And yet, he said, I served among you with humility of mind. This was his testimony. This was the witness of his life. He did so with integrity. I'm thankful for leaders that, that show integrity. The word integrity means wholeness. It means they are what they claim to be. They are what they say that they are. He said, I was pure from the blood of all men. He said, I coveted nothing. You know my testimony. I have a testimony of integrity. Paul's not only going to tell us about his, his faithful witness, but he gives a final warning in verse 29 and 30. He says there's two parts to this warning. First of all, there are going to be grievous wolves that are going to come from outside, and they are going to attack the flock. You've got to be careful. You've got to be vigilant. You've got to watch. You've got to be sober and vigilant. And you've got to be on guard because there are false teachings that will creep into the church. There are false teachers who will come in. And these wolves will come in and they will not regard the flock of God. It's interesting that we often think about the attacks on the church as being persecution and being restrictions of our liberty. And yet Paul's response to the attack from without was not about what the world was going to do to us, but to the false teaching that would come in. 
As we look at the epistles in the New Testament, what is Paul's warning? His greatest warnings are not about persecution. His greatest warnings are about doctrine and about teaching. He wants them to stay true to the gospel. He knows that the greatest danger is that our message will be diverted from the purity of the gospel. That's what's happening many places today where things are being taken away from the gospel. Our things are being added to the gospel. And so he says there's going to be wolves that are going to come from the outside, but not just the attack from without. He also warns about the attack from within. Verse 30, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things. I sometimes wonder when Jesus or Paul, and these, you know, they gave warnings about um, some of you is going to do this. Do you remember when Jesus said to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me? They immediately began to look around and say, who is it? Which one was it? And I wonder when Paul says this, also of yourselves, if they began, these elders, these pastors began to look at each other and think, wait a minute, who's, who's going to be the one? We don't know who it's going to be. It may not have been one of the ones that were listening, but he was saying that from within the church, you see, if Satan cannot hinder the work of the gospel and hinder the work of the church from outside, he will stir up trouble from within. And so we have to be careful not just in a time of transition, but in the years to come, that we are constantly vigilant. Just as we have been vigilant in the past, we are to be vigilant in the future, to be careful that we stay true to the Word of God. Someone said to me a while back, they said, I appreciate that you preach the Bible. I said, I got nothing else to preach. I got nothing else. I mean, I've got a lot of opinions. I try to keep them to myself most of the time. Occasionally they slip out. I've gotten a lot better at it over the years, hopefully, with some Holy Spirit restraint. I feel sort of like Charles Spurgeon. Someone said, Charles Spurgeon, you, you laugh too much in the pulpit. He said, if you only knew how much I was holding back, you'd admire my restraint. And I feel the same way about sometimes I say things. And I'm like, wait a minute, if you knew how much I was holding in, you'd be amazed that I was holding that much in. But I've got nothing else to say but the Word of God. We have no other message but the Scriptures. Thus saith the Lord. We can give opinions about all sorts of things. And I'm going to be, I, I, I laugh when I say that. I'm going to be honest. I've been honest up to this point, okay? Don't think I've been, I've been lying. When a preacher says that, I always think, what's he been lying up to this point? I'm going to be honest. I've heard some, I have heard some, I'm not going to call them sermons, and I'm not going to stand here and bash other preachers. But I am going to say this. If you stand in the pulpit, and all you've got to talk about is promoting the most recent conspiracy theory, and all you've got to talk about is politics, you're not preach that's not preaching the Word of God. Amen. Now, the Word of God speaks to current issues. And there are times when you preach what the Bible says and you may be accused of preaching politics. But what's moral is not what's political. And what's biblical is not what's political. And there are those, man, they, they want to hear ranting and raving. And I saw a guy this week that was running, spitting, tearing. And I thought, man, there's a lot of people that would love to. And he never once had a verse of Scripture. Never once talked about Jesus. He talked about a lot of political leaders. He talked about a lot of current issues. But he never once got around to the Word of God. I want to tell you that there are those who will rise from within who are dangers to the flock. 
because they divert from the message of the Scriptures. Amen, Pastor. That's good preaching. Don't y'all make me amen myself. That's... Paul was amen in himself. Paul said, let me tell you what I've preached to you. I've preached the whole counsel of God, the Scriptures, grievous wolves. But then Paul gets to his fruitful work that he has done. Paul says, look, this is, you know how I have ministered among you. When we get to verses 20 and verse 21, we see how Paul has served. As we think about this idea of transition in this church, as they transition from the primary leadership of Paul, Paul has not been there all the time, but he is the primary leader of this church. And now it's going to be transitioning because God has something else for him and a task for him to do, but there are others that will step up. And I think about the, the passing of a baton in the relay races. Now, if you have kept up much with the, the uh, Olympic teams and the recent Olympics, you know that the American men especially, now the women, boy, they've got it down. They know how to pass the baton and win the race. But our men's team just seems to struggle a little bit with the idea of taking a baton and putting it in the hand of the guy in front of them. Now, I understand there's con that's complex, it's kind of hard, but it doesn't seem like it's that complex to me. Several years ago, back, back I guess five years ago now, back at the, most re the past Olympics, 2016, you may remember that our men's team um, took a victory lap after winning the bronze medal. They put the flags over their shoulders and they made the, made the lap. They were excited because it had been a little while since they had won the 4 by 100 relay race. After they made their victory lap, they came to them and said, um, we need your medal back. Uh, you disqualified yourselves in passing the baton. <laughs> they had passed the baton outside of the area that they were allowed to do it in. They have a short period of time in which to do that, and they didn't follow the rules. I'm reminded of what Paul says, that no man competes unless he competes lawfully. He has to follow the rules. How embarrassing for that to take place as that baton is passed for it to be done in a way that causes humiliation and embarrassment, especially after you've just taken a victory lap. I wondered if they made them go backwards around the track to take it back. When the relay is passed, it's interesting to know that the race is not over. When the baton is passed, the race is not over. Now, when we think about transition... We are in a moment of transition over the last couple of years going into the months ahead, but the church is constantly in a transition. You see, we are not, this may come as a shock to some of us, we are not the first Christians to be in this race. We're probably about leg 3,792 of this race. I'm estimating there, but you get my point. The same race that this church was a part of that this transition was taking place. And if Christ does not return, if the rapture doesn't take place in our time, you know what's going to happen? We're going to pass the baton on to the next generation. I'm thankful for those who are serving with our children and our students, and they're helping prepare them for the baton to be passed to them, and they're already in the race. This is not something that's coming. They're already involved. They're already in the race. And it'll be passed. And if Christ doesn't return in the next generation... This congregation will look very different. Many of us will not be here. Why? Because the 
baton gets passed. The race goes on. As we think about that, there are some things in a transition that change. When the runner gets to the stage where he is to hand the baton on to the next runner, there is the runner that changes. There are different runners. It's not the same one for each leg of the race. There will come a time when your segment of the race will end, but there will be others who will carry the torch. I used to talk to a friend, and he used to pray this in a lot of his prayers. Uh, may, there, may there be faith found when Christ returns. Um, there will be faith found when Christ returns. Jesus is not going to come back in the rapture for the church and say, where is everybody? The church will be here. Now, what that looks like and what it looks like here may change, but we go on until, until Christ does return. This race goes on, but it's different runners. And because it's different runners, the skills and the gifts and the abilities, the strengths change. In a relay race, there are those who are the ones who start, and there's ones that are in the second leg or the third leg, and then there's the one who's in the anchor, and each one has different abilities and different skill level, and that is best suited. The coach places them so that they will win, hopefully win the race. And they train for that part, and they're ready for that part, and they have that part that they play. In the church of Ephesus, as in the church today, there are different runners, and there are different skills, and there are different strengths. In the church of Ephesus, Paul is involved in the founding of it, but Apollos is also involved, and Aquila, and Priscilla, and Timothy, and John, all invest in this one church. And this one church did not need just one individual. There were different runners. There were different strengths. There were different ones that ministered. There was John, who was aged. There was Timothy, who was young. There was Aquila, who was a husband, and Priscilla, his wife. And there was Paul, who had writing abilities and dynamic personality and a strong personality. And then there was Apollos, who was a gifted orator, and yet the Scriptures tell us nothing about his words. Not one word do we know what Apollos said, and yet he poured into the life of the church at Ephesus. Why? Because when the transition, when the baton is passed, there are different runners with different strengths. But there are some things that stay the same some things that do not change. And that's what's important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand what does not change. Because just as Paul passed on and said, this is what I have done when I am here, he is saying to those who will take the next leg of the journey, this is what you are to do. And we have to be prepared and understand that as we look to the future and we look to what God has for us as a church, it is important for us to know the things that do not change because that is what we are responsible for. That is what we have been tasked with being faithful about. What is Paul's fruitful work? Look in verse 20 and verse 21. What continues on? Let's identify the essentials that we're called to. First of all, there is the work within the church. What is our task within the body of Christ? Is it just to, is it just to babysit the believers? Is it just to be, as someone has said, instead of fishers of men, we become keepers of the aquarium? No, it is a specific task that God has called us to do. What defines it? How do we understand it? Well, there's two extremes to this. There are those who are 
stuck in tradition. Their answer to this is, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way it's always been done. Tradition determines what we do. Are there some good things that we've done in the past? Absolutely. Are there times when precedent has been set and there's a reason that it was done that way? Absolutely. But sometimes tradition is nothing more than tradition. I remember the story, I may have shared this before, but the young lady that got married and she was preparing the ham for dinner. Her husband is standing there watching her. He was still early enough in the marriage that he just couldn't leave the same room and he had to be in the room to watch her and he was watching her cook and she got ready to put the the ham in the pan and she cut the end of the ham off before she put it in the oven. And he said, why did you do that? She said, I don't know, but whenever my mom cooked ham, she always cut the end of the ham off. He said, well, I'm really curious. I want to find out why we do that. So she called her mom and she said, Mom, um, we're curious. I cut the end of the ham off and I want to know why we do that. And her mom said, well, I don't know. I've always done that. You saw me do it. She said, I just always saw your grandma do it. So they called grandma and they said, well, why do we cut the end of the ham off? Where did that start? She said, well, when your grandfather and I first got married, I only had one pan. And every time I'd go to put the ham in it, it wasn't big enough, and so I didn't have a bigger pan, so I'd cut the end of the ham off and so it would fit in the pan to put in the oven. You see, there's a, there's a lot of traditions that made sense when they started and there was a reason for them. They're not bad. It's not bad to cut the end of the ham off, except you lose some good ham. But we don't remember why, we don't know why, but we hold on to it. That's the way it's always been done. On the other hand, you've got people who are all about trend. What's the most recent church growth trend? That's what we've got to do. Preacher, this church is doing that. Why aren't we doing that? Well, sometimes churches are doing things that God has specifically for them to do, and it works where they are, and that's what God has called them to do. It may not be what God has called us to do. We have to follow God's leadership for us. But, oh, this is the new thing, and we're always we're going to jump on board. The problem with that is, is that trends change and are changing even more rapidly. And what you, you end up just almost on a, going through a revolving door round and round and round. And we're doing it because somebody else does Just because it works for somebody else. Just because it's, this is what everyone else is doing. How do we determine what's valuable from tradition And what's valuable from trends? There are some good new things to do. You realize that much of what our tradition is at one point was a trend. And this became tradition over time. How do we determine what's of value in both of those? And how do we determine what is right for us to do? We do so with the truth. We govern it and we gauge it by the word of God. How does it help us accomplish what God has called us to do? And that is what does not change when there's a passing of the baton. You see, when the passing of the baton takes place, the runner is different and his strengths are different and the, his style of running is different and there's, some, there's things that are different. But what does not change is he's still running. He's running just like the runner before him and the runner before him. The work does not change. Our task does not change. We have the same mission that we've always had. We have the same mission that the church in Acts had. We have the same mission that the true church throughout the ages has had. 
Another thing that does not change is the ultimate goal. The purpose of every one of those runners is to get their team across the finish line faithfully and finish the race successfully. And that is our task, is that one day when Christ does return and the race is finally over, or when our leg of the race is done, we can say, as Paul says here and Paul will say elsewhere, I have finished the course with joy. When the time comes for me to pass the baton on, when my ministry, when my task is finished in a stage in life or in my life, I want to finish with joy. I want to know that I was faithful in the task that God gave me, that I was faithful in the leg of the race that was mine to run. What is this work that Paul does? Verse 20, the work within the church is to teach, to instruct He says in verse 20, How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you. We must do so completely. He'll say further down, he says, I have taught you, I have not shunned to declare, verse 27, to declare unto you all, to declare unto you all the counsel of God. What is all the counsel of God? It is all that is necessary for fruitfulness and effectiveness in the Christian life. That is why we preach the Word of God. That is why we preach the whole counsel of God. That is why we are not to get distracted with all these other issues and these things that will pull us away from what the Scripture says. Because it's the whole counsel of God that will make us effective. It is the whole counsel of God that will make us fruitful. And it is centered in what Paul will preach and testify to, the gospel of the grace of God. Again, there are two extremes in this. Boy, you see a lot of extremes, don't we? There's the extreme of, well, we're just going to, you should only preach the mess, just the message of the gospel. I preached a message once on, um, related to sexual ethics in our culture and biblical principles about that, and someone said, you preachers just need to stick with the gospel. You don't need to talk about these other issues. On the other hand, there's those that will talk about every issue under the sun without actually touching on the gospel. How do we preach the whole counsel of God? The whole counsel of God is the message of the gospel, but it is the message of the gospel faithfully and fruitfully and effectively lived out through our lives, and it touches every single area of our life. It's the gospel that governs and guides how I raise my children. It's the gospel that governs and guides how I husband my wife. It's, my, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel that flows out into how I do my work on the job or how I do my schoolwork or whatever I do in my life. Every area of my life is rooted in the message of the gospel, how I serve Jesus, the motivation for which I serve Christ, all rooted in the gospel. And so the whole counsel of God is preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is the gospel fully developed. It's not just getting up every Sunday and sharing the plan of salvation over and over again, or somehow working the plan of the salvation into every message, though every message in somewhere or the other points us to the cross. It is connecting that into what that looks like. What does it look like for me to be a follower of Christ? Paul said, I have preached completely I have taught you completely. He said, I do so clearly. He says, I have showed you. I have made it clear and plain to you. He did this 
with two ways. He did this by word and by deed. Boy, that's so important. That has to do with the integrity of his ministry. To not only preach what the Scripture says, but to live what the Scripture says. I want to take just a moment and give an illustration of this. He's not here this morning, so I'll brag. He, would, he wouldn't want me to do this. But our pastor preached a message Wednesday night that is a very practical message. If you were not here Wednesday night, I encourage you to go online on Facebook or on YouTube and watch that message. But it is a message about practical Christian living. That he not only preached with his words, he preaches with his example. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I have showed you, not just with what I'm saying, but with what I'm doing. Let me tell you that that is our task as a church. Not whether we stand up here in the pulpit or stand behind a podium to teach a Sunday school class. But as believers, our task is to be faithful in clearly showing by both our word and our deed. There's no confusion caused by inconsistency. Many times in families, we'll say one thing and then do something else, and our kids pick up on that inconsistency. And it causes confusion. Well, you tell me I'm not supposed to do this, but I, I, I hear you do it. Or I see you do it. Paul says, I have clearly showed you by both my testimony, by the way that I've lived, and by what I've said. He does it continuously. He uses the progressive form of the word taught, and it indicates repetition. Some people don't like repetition. They don't like to hear things over and over. Some people don't like repetition. They don't like to hear things over and over. You know what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1? He says, I stir you up to remembrance. I'm reminding you of things you've already heard. By what? Saying them over and over. Great story about the old country preacher that went to a new church and he got up and he preached a powerful sermon the first Sunday. Got up the second Sunday and preached the exact same sermon. People thought, well, maybe he just didn't have time to study this week. He got up the third Sunday and preached the exact same sermon. And finally, some of the deacons came to him and they said, Pastor, we're a little concerned that you've been here three weeks now and you've only preached the one sermon. He said, when you start living by this one, I'll preach you another one. There are some things we learn by repetition. Paul says, I've taught you. In three years, he repeated some things. He taught them over why? Because he wanted to get it ingrained into their minds and into their hearts what the truth of Scripture was. Not only does he say how, but look, he also does this in public ministry and in private ministry. I have taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul says, you've heard me in public preaching these things and these truths. And then there's been times when I've sat in your home and I've had that one-on-one conversation or maybe a few of us together, but I have spoken the truth to you. Boy, we ought to give thanks to God that at Central Baptist we have had and you have had a faithful ministry of the Word, the preaching of the Word of God. And that message, that task does not change It's what we do in Sunday school. It's what we do in grow classes. It's what we do in the work of discipleship to help us be grounded in the Word of God, the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we like. When he says the whole counsel, it's not not being selective in style. 
It's not being selective in the content of what we're proclaiming. You see, there's some that get their favorite topics. I've seen churches that all they want to talk about was prophecy. I've preached prophecy. We, we believe in the prophetic word of Scripture. But that can't be all that we hear. I know others that get on their pet hobby horses. And a pastor said one time, he said, I have about eight, eight or ten sermons. And every time somebody new comes to church, I just start back over. No matter where I am in that series, I just start back at the beginning and go over again. He had about just a few topics that he liked to focus on. It's not being selective in that way. It is proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Now, I understand that there are styles and there's differences in styles. We know that those change preacher said, I think it was Wednesday night, tired of hearing about David Jeremiah. I love David Jeremiah. I love Charles Stanley. But I think sometimes if I ever hear their names again, I'm going to just slap somebody. <laughs> lady came up to me. I preached a, on a passage one time, and she came up to me after the service, and she said, that was a great passage. That's, I love that passage. I heard, heard Charles Stanley preach on it last Sunday, and he preached the best sermon I've ever heard on it. It was the same person that told me once, she said, uh, well, that's a great sermon. You, need to, you should preach like that every Sunday. <laughs> if you only knew how much I restrained myself, you would applaud <laughs> my restraint. I get that there's different styles that connect with our, our, our styles of learning and our personalities, and I understand that. But the important thing is the truth of Scripture. What remains unchanging is that we proclaim the message of the gospel and the whole counsel of God. But Paul's ministry was not just within the church. Notice his ministry in the community, his work in the community. In verse 21, he said, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There's several things we see here. We see who he testified to and who we are to testify to. He says the Jew and the Greeks. There was no boundaries. There was no barriers. Every person needs to hear the message of the gospel. Every person needs to hear the message of the gospel. When we begin to say, well, I don't want that kind of person, I wouldn't be comfortable being in the church with that, that kind of person. We are beginning to say that person is not worthy of the gospel. And Paul says, I'm preaching the gospel to all. And he says, I'm preaching repentance and faith. Now in this we see that he, the message of the gospel is given in charity. It is given in love. It is to all people. We see that it is given in its simplicity. It's just as simple as this. Repentance of sin and faith to God. Let's not overcomplicate things. Yes, we will, as we'll see in a moment, we've got to preach the gospel in its integrity. But let's preach it in its simplicity. These men and women that were going around that world proclaiming the gospel, they were preaching to people, they were teaching to people, they were testifying to people, many of them who couldn't even read. These were not philosophers. These were not the highly educated of society. These were not the wealthy. And yet they could understand the message of the gospel. The gospel in its simplicity. And let me say to you this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, this is the simple message of the gospel. Repentance of sin and faith toward God. Acknowledging that I am a sinner and that I cannot save myself. Believing that Jesus died for my sins and rose again the third day. And confessing him as my Lord and Savior. That's the simple message of the gospel. And Paul says, 
I have preached this message simply, but there's clarity to it. It's as clear as can be. It's not complicated. It's not mixed in with this or that. We've not added to it. We've not taken away from it. It is proclaimed with clarity, but it is proclaimed in its integrity. We cannot take away from the message of the gospel. We live in a day when it is unpopular to say Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And yet it was Jesus himself that said what? I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And that is our message, the message of the gospel. We've got no other message to proclaim. There was a man some years ago, I read about him just this week, who became one of the leading religious leaders in our country. And he said, I, I don't want to proclaim anything negative. I don't want to say anything negative. I might hurt somebody's feelings. And so he said, I'm going to only focus on what's positive about Christianity. Well, let me tell you that the message of the gospel is a positive and powerful message, but it begins with something very negative. It begins with the fact that the reason I need a Savior is because I'm a sinner. And Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. And that's what Paul proclaimed. That's the message that he gave. These two things are the measure of the work that we are to do. And it's the measure of how faithfully we run our leg of the race. There's a lot of ways that people evaluate their service for God evaluate their Christian life, evaluate the success of a church. I'm thankful for everyone that's here this morning, but the fact that there are many people here this morning is not necessarily a mark of a successful church. I saw some football games yesterday. There was a lot of people there. That doesn't mean that they had the blessings of God. There's a lot of things we can use to measure. Are our offering plates full? And I'm thankful for your giving. I'm thankful that you give and we're able to give to missions and we're able to do the work God calls us to here. But having full coffers does not mean success. What means success is how faithfully are we doing these things that remain unchanged. Leaders change, methods change, times change. But the message of the gospel and the work of Scripture does not change. Why? Because it's the same task that God gave, that Christ gave to the disciples, go you into all the world and preach the gospel. Paul says, I'm testifying to every creature of the message of the gospel. And teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Paul said, I have taught you, I have shown you, I have instructed you, I have modeled before you. Paul is simply describing the Great Commission. And the question for us as a church, will we, in our leg of the race, we are a following scene in this action. We may not yet be in the final act, but we're one of the scenes that have come. This is the church in action. This is the book of Acts, and this is our task. And what we do is carry on the same work that they did then. Will we stay faithful? Will we stand up in a time when it is increasingly unpopular to do so and be faithful to the word of Scripture and be faithful to the message of the gospel? That's the question of our task, our work as a church. And the measure with which we will stand before God is not how many people came through the doors or not how many buildings we built. It is about how faithful were we in the task that God gave us to do. And I don't know about you, but I want to be faithful to this task. This is what determines everything that we do. 
When we prepare for Judgment House, it is not just so we can run some people through here and say we did an event. It is to proclaim the message of the gospel. It is so that people will hear that they need to be saved and that one day they will stand before God. And when we do outreach events and when we do community service and ministry, it is not just simply to do good deeds in our community. It is to open up doors of opportunity and to build bridges so that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our task. That is our work. And it remains unchanged. The baton may pass. Times change. Leaders change. Methods change. But the message and the mission of the gospel will always, until Christ returns, remain the same. That's for us as a church. Will we be faithful? Let me ask you this morning. Will you commit? Will you say, God, with all of my heart, in this time that you have called me to be in, in this place, in this moment, in this opportunity, by your grace, I will run this race with patience. I will complete my leg of the journey with joy. I will finish the course with joy and faithfulness. One day when you stand before God, your pastor's will hope and pray that you will have finished with faithfulness and joy. That is our ministry. That is our call. That is our task. Let us be found faithful so that when he shall appear, we can have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Transitions and changes are all around us. They affect us not just as a church. They affect us as individuals. It may be this morning that you're in a time of transition in your life. You're trying to figure out how to navigate it. You're trying to figure out where to go with it. I'm reminded of the old song, Hold to God's Unchanging Hand. Do you remember the first line of it? Time is filled with swift transition. Naught of earth unmoved can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold God's unchanging hand. If you're in a time of transition in your life, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in your job, maybe it's with your children, maybe it's just in life in general, this is the time to take hold of God's hand. His hand is unchanging. There's another great old hymn that says, All around, change and decay, all around I see, O thou who changes not, abide with me. Maybe this morning, you need to take hold of God's unchanging.